0: Hello, everyone, to another episode of NerdRx Podcast, and I am your host, Barkha. Today, we are going to talk about a new technique, a relatively new technique, called proximity labeling technology. And to talk more about that, we have Natalie Harris. Uh, Welcome, Natalie, to the show. Hi, Barkha. Thanks for having me here. Uh, It's my pleasure. Uh, So before we jump right into the topic... Uh, why don't uh, you introduce yourself uh, so that we know more about you?
1: Yes. So um, as you said, my name is Natalie Harris, and I am currently a PhD student at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And uh, my research mostly focuses on lymphatic biology and molecular regulators of how um, these vessels function. And um, I have a background in biochemistry and molecular biology, which is, uh, relevant for today's talk, considering uh-huh. we're talking about proximity labeling technologies in the cells.
0: And uh, thank you so much for that introduction. So talking about proximity labeling, I have not come across it. So this is something I'm going to learn with everyone else. So what is proximity labeling and why? Uh, what got you interested in it?
1: Yeah, so um, kind of the overview of proximity labeling is kind of exactly how it sounds is that you're wanting to identify, um, usually in this case, proteins that are nearby something, usually another protein. So um, the kind of idea behind proximity labeling is a little bit um, newer in the sense that we're trying to look for things that are around one another. So in the past, a lot of biochemistry has been direct interactions. So, like two proteins that are physically kind of touching each other. within a super small radius. So um, this proximity labeling is a little bit different in that it enables you to identify things that are in the vicinity. So kind of things that are further away. So not necessarily proteins that are directly touching one another, but two that might be in the same kind of compartment within a cell, maybe traveling together as proteins are made and travel to the plasma membrane. So it kind of gives you more of like an idea of uh, the whole area. So I like to use this analogy, kind of like going fishing. Uh So in the past, direct labeling technologies are kind of like fishing with a fishing rod and hook. So you're kind of getting one protein at a time and you kind of can immediately identify that fish. So the proximity labeling technology is kind of more like casting a net. So you're kind of seeing everything that was around that area that you're fishing in. Mm -hmm. Then you kind of have to one by one, see what type of fish are in the net. So that's, Um, kind of the most basic overview of Mm -hmm. how this proximity labeling technology works. Awesome. That was a very nice analogy. Like I could picture that
0: um, (laughs) in my head. Uh, So why is proximity labeling important? And what are uh, some of the applications you would use for?
1: Yeah. So um, proximity labeling is really helpful in the sense that When you think of protein function, so proteins, you know, they generally traffic to wherever they're supposed to go in the cell and exert a certain function, but um, we don't always know like how they get from point A to point B or when they're at their like location, who else they're interacting with and whether that's in like a quick manner, like at a certain time or even within a certain space. So the proximity labeling technology allows you to see what is around your protein at a certain time and space. So for my research I'm um, been looking at an adherence junction protein, which is a protein that helps cells kind of adhere together. Like the name says, and um, in lymphatics specifically, the protein that we're interested in maintains these two different conformations one where the cells are um, more permeable relative to one another. So big things can pass between the cells Mm and, um, and then a different conformation where they're more tightly bound together. So things can't pass between cells really easily. But what's interesting is from what we know is that it's the same, Proteins that make up this junction. So clearly, something else must be going on around the protein or on the protein to make it happen in these two different conformations. So that's why we're applying this proximity labeling technology to kind of see what the neighbors are, more or less, mm-hmm. of this protein. Uh, so let's talk about the steps involved.
0: Uh, is this? Uh, could you just give us like a rundown from how would you go on setting this experiment and? The steps involved and how long does an experiment usually last?
1: Yeah, so the exact name of the technology we've been using is called um, BioID. So it's biotin dependent proximity identification. So essentially, the way that this works is you have a protein of interest and you fuse it to this promiscuous biotin ligase that we call BioID. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of different iterations of the BioID that have come out that are faster, smaller, better, but more or less you put this um, promiscuous biotin ligase attached to the end of your protein. So that involves kind of uh, cloning pretty classically where you um, would design a construct that has this biotin ligase fused to the either front end or back end of your protein. And then once you have this construct and you transfect it or transduce it into cells, you give the cells a certain amount of biotin. And then what happens is this promiscuous biotin ligase kind of takes this biotin, eats it up and um, tags proteins that are nearby. So basically anything that was nearby this protein that had the bio ID on it becomes biotinylated. And what's unique about this technology is that it's not just biotinylating everything in the cell, it's biotinylating everything that's near your protein. Mm-hmm. So then, now that you have this cell that has these. Certain set of biotinylated proteins, you can actually use um, an affinity pull down using streptavidin, which binds very highly and specifically to biotin. Okay. So essentially, what you're doing is you're pulling down these biotinylated proteins very specifically. And now that you have this set of biotinylated proteins, you can send it off for mass spectrometry to actually identify the proteins. So it's kind of like a Wrangling the cattle that you've branded more or less. so mm-hmm. you uh, take the, your cattle that you know which who they are, then you put them in a pen, pull them down, and then send them off for identification. So essentially it allows you to identify at the protein level which proteins were near your bait. Okay, and so kind of like time wise, it takes um, however long, it takes to do cloning, which for me, unfortunately, took many years just because <laughs> my particular protein was um, really bad at cloning, but not to scare anyone off. I made other constructs for a different protein and they were very quick. It takes about a couple of weeks to get your mm-hmm. cloning done. And then the actual experiment itself is um, just transfecting or transducing your cells, which takes you know a couple of days and then feeding it biotin, which is a couple of hours. And then the processing for the pull down is maybe about a day. So then you send it off for mass spec, which can take a while Mm -hmm. just because of the technology. And usually you have to send it off to a core. So that can take like three weeks. So all in all, you could feasibly do the experiment and have results in your hand and definitely less than six months. Okay, So it's, it's something that I think is worth doing if you're really interested in seeing um, maybe what is interacting around your protein of interest. Mm -hmm. Okay. And this might be
0: a naive question, but um, is there any cutoff to how, like the proximity? I mean, uh, how close and how far should the uh, other molecule or the other protein uh, should be uh, to interact? Yeah.
1: So in this case, the BioID enzyme itself, it sends off these really highly reactive intermediates that bind to lysines of proteins that are nearby. And so kind of they diffuse out and bind. So this radius is really limited because they're so reactive. Mm -hmm. It ends up being about, I believe, 50 nanometers around your cell. So it is a decent distance, but it's not so much that you're picking up a lot of things that aren't actually
0: nearby your protein. Mm -hmm. So it's quite sensitive. Like 15 nanometers is quite small.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it seems small, but some of the other, um, proximity labeling technologies like fret, which is like an energy resonance transfer Mm -hmm. between two things that are nearby. That's like 10 or five nanometers. And it's, you have to know what two pieces you're looking at for interacting. So, um, relatively speaking for proximity, it's a fairly decent amount, but again, it's not so unspecific that it will just tag anything nearby. Okay. Okay. That's great. Um, and, uh,
0: you spoke about bio ID and just from my basic reading, I read there are other things as well. So are there any alternative techniques to bio ID that you could use to get same results?
1: Yes. Yeah, so there is, um, of course, the BioID, they've come out with new generations of the enzyme that are smaller and faster and can increase or decrease that radius of labeling. Then there's a very other similar technology. It's called APEX. I don't remember what it stands for, but it kind of uses a um, peroxidase interaction to do something very similar. In, instead of adding biotin, you're adding um, peroxidase to the cells and you're kind of like freezing the, um, interactions in time. And it's again, very like controllable and you could change the, um, amount of peroxidase to kind of get different, um, labeling as well. Um, and the, both of those techniques are really similar in the sense that you have to design your construct and put it in the cells and treat it. Um, in terms of alternatives, sometimes like proximity labeling can be to look at really specific interactions, you know, of as well. So really common, um, uh, experiment that's done actually after you perform the bio ID and get a list of proteins. You want to see if they were direct interactors or not. So there's a technique called um, Duolink PLA, so proximity ligation assay. So that involves using two primary antibodies against two targets you know, and you put this secondary antibody on top that creates this um, really highly specific fluorescent signal using almost like PCR mm-hmm. on the cells it has these little transcripts that when they're nearby each other actually create like a product that you can tag fluorescently so essentially it ends up looking like little dots on the cell exactly where your two primary antibodies bound so that's like a proof of concept that these two things are in proximity to each other mm-hmm. that's a little bit different than bioID in the sense that you need to know exactly what two proteins you're looking for, mm-hmm. and you are limited to just looking at two proteins, yeah,
0: okay uh that is uh, great uh, and would you say this technique is user friendly like a complete new like a novice could learn this quickly or does it require some amount of training
1: so I'll say when I started this project, I had no idea what it yeah. was either, <laughs> so you can do it I think in terms of um The user friendliness, it's pretty simple, like in what you're doing. You're creating um, a construct, and a lot of times these backbones Mm -hmm. for these constructs are already made. So it's kind of like this circular DNA. It has all the pieces together, and you kind of like cut and paste in your protein. So everything else is ready to go, Mm -hmm. which on paper should be pretty easy. But in reality, it's usually a lot more finicky than you think it is. You have to keep keep trying again and again and again to make sure you're the perfect. Construct and have it sequenced. So it is user friendly in the sense that the directions and things are very clear. It just kind of depends on your protein and your familiarity kind of with the process of cloning, how long that takes. And then the other thing is eventually the the goal is to send your pool of biotinylated proteins to mass spec to be identified. Mm -hmm. So if you're not a mass spec expert, I am not. (laughs) Luckily, we have a core on campus that we pretty much send our samples to and they give us data back. So if you don't have that type of um, service or if you're running this uh, mass spec by yourself, it could be really complicated in that sense. Mm -hmm. But we're really lucky here at UNC that we have a core that pretty much handles the entire mass spec part for Mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, that is a very uh, um, helpful thing. Even I think we sent our samples to the core facility. (laughs) Um, I don't think every department can afford a mass spec and let alone Mm -hmm. run, maintain it. It's... Crazy. <laughs> so let's talk about the advantages and disadvantages of BioIT.
1: So, in terms of advantages, kind of like I mentioned earlier, you're able to see things that are nearby your protein in a certain space and time. So, that's really interesting when you're thinking of. Uh, Proteins getting made and um, being trafficked to wherever they're supposed to go. You'll actually be able to pick up on things that help traffic your protein. Like for example, plasma membrane protein. You'll you will identify things that help traffic it to the plasma membrane, which may be known and may not be known. Or once that protein's at the membrane, you'll be able to um, see what things are nearby because maybe it traffics to really particular space on the plasma membrane. So this will kind of let you see those different things. But the other problem is in terms of like a disadvantage, once you get this list back, you get all of it all together. So you're getting things like ribosomes in terms of, you know, having your protein being um, translated and um, transcribed. So then you also get um, things that are, you know, like actin, which kind of makes sense because actins everywhere. Most likely proteins have trafficked along actin somewhere because that's how cargo moves in the cell. But that could be good depending on what protein you're looking at. And then um, you also will get things like receptors at the membranes. So that can be kind of a disadvantage in the sense that you have this whole giant list all together. So it's hard to say what's real or not. And then I think one of the biggest disadvantages is that in terms of background, with any kind of experiment like this, you'll have some sort of background things that are pulled down, mm-hmm. right? So pretty much anyone that does like an IP, if you use an antibody to pull down different proteins, there is a certain amount of just nonspecific binding to beads or things that are maybe non-specifically biotinylated just by chance that, you know, we're casting a fishing net around our protein. It could just be at random, some protein happened to be in there yeah. in that net that doesn't mean anything. No. So it kind of becomes not necessarily a disadvantage it becomes a little bit trickier when you're actually starting to validate what was on your list Mm -hmm. so it's a disadvantage in the sense that you don't always know what's background or not but they've kind of um come out with certain ways to kind of clean that up so if you know you have a membrane protein and you're not interested in how it's trafficked there you can get rid of um all sorts of translational material like i'm not interested in ribosomes i'm going to manually remove all of them from the list so it kind of depends on your experiment depending on what you're looking for, your list could be really complicated or it could be really simple if you know what exactly you're trying to parse out. Mm -hmm. And again, um, like if you're looking at time, if you're just looking at how things change over time, what's in your list doesn't necessarily matter as much as what individual proteins are changing like with time. Mm -hmm. So it's very experiment dependent, but there's definitely ways to get around the disadvantages. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, most of the experiments, and especially when you start something new, the toughest uh, question is knowing exactly what you're looking for in most of the things and eliminating the unnecessary data to make your life simple. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, uh, I know you uh, explained all the steps involved. Uh, If I may ask, which step is the most annoying or like you took the longest to troubleshoot?
1: For me, it was cloning for my construct, but again, that was very specific to my protein because it took me, actually, I hate to say it, four years <laughs> to get it wow. cloned, but um, that didn't happen with other proteins that I cloned. And then kind of the most, I guess, then time-consuming or difficult step is once you finally have that list in your hand, you could have a list of thousands of proteins. You're like, okay, what do I do with this? Yeah. So. It can be scary, but also kind of exciting because you get to at that point decide, you know, what's my next step? Mm -hmm. What do I want to focus on? So for some people that can be really daunting and it definitely is, but it's also very exciting at the same Mm -hmm. time. Okay. Uh,
0: And what would you say are the costs involved here? Like if there is a lab uh, very new to proximity labeling, is it a technique that could easily be set up without uh, breaking the bank?
1: Yeah. So I think it also kind of depends on your schools or your lab's ability to access and use a mass spec, Mm -hmm. whether or not you're operating it yourself or with a core. Um, generally cloning is not all that terribly expensive. A lot of these bio ID constructs you can buy off of companies like add gene, or even if you had a little bit more money, you could probably go to a place like vector builder and say, Hey, build this entire construct. I don't want to do any cloning. You make it and send it to me. So that can be, um, actually pretty cheap depending on if you're going to do some of the cloning manually. So that's maybe like a hundred dollars per, uh, construct wow. and then, just some incidental costs for like mm-hmm. enzymes, depending on how you're doing your cloning and then doing the various like pull downs um, could be expensive. Cause you're talking about um, streptavidin beads, which you use for your pull down. So those can be a couple hundred per use, but again, you can run a lot of samples on them. So kind of the bigger cost comes to once you've actually, um, you know, done the full experiment and you've pulled down your biotinylated proteins, the mass spec, at least at UNC, our core um, for about a, about 12 samples maybe is like $3,000. So once you get down there, it can be pretty expensive oh. because they're you know running it on the mass spec. They're also spending their time cleaning up the data. So there's special steps that you have to do for mass spec, regardless of what the experiment was to just clean up the data. So like a big... Contaminant for all mass spec experiments is keratin because even though we think we're the most sterile in the world, we somehow get skin cells and hair cells into our things. So they do cleanup steps like that. And then ultimately, at least at UNC, they actually analyze our data for us. They give us um, quality scores on how good our different replicates were, how clean they were, and they ultimately also. Um, do all the searching and pull out all the proteins that were identified. So Mm -hmm. in terms of their time, the cost is justified for sure, because they're doing a lot of work on our samples, but it can be really expensive. So if you're trying to look at like 12 different conditions, it's really not going to be cost effective. So that's why we do a lot of optimizing before we get to that point, because you can Mm -hmm. still perform the whole experiment, do the pull down, and then actually run out your proteins on a gel and use streptavidin to see kind of how many proteins, relatively speaking, were pulled out. And so like you can compare two different um, gels for two different proteins and they will actually look really different. Like they'll look like a smear, Mm -hmm. but the smears will look different. So that tells you that – what was being biotinylated is actually unique to your protein. And so you can kind of look also for known interactors like on these blots as well. So something that you know should appear in this list that's maybe a direct interactor of your protein. So you can see if you're pulling that down. So there's a lot of optimizing you can do before going to the mass spec, which is cheap to make it cost effective. So you're only sending the most yeah important samples Correct. for mass spec yeah that actually brings
0: down the cost so much because i was thinking like every experiment you run you have to send to mass spec to know the results so that actually is very cost effective
1: oh yeah and um that's exactly right so you can really optimize um your experiment before you send it there and for our work we've only actually sent things to the mass spec Twice, like in the f- now six years that I've been wow. working on, it. we've actually only sent it all the way to mass spec twice. And another reason that you want to optimize is because if you have all these giant mass spec lists, you can waste so much time processing a list. You don't want to spend time looking at a list that is maybe faulty because something earlier in the experiment is bad. So this is definitely the kind of experiment where it is a lot of trial and error in the beginning. Mm-hmm. But um, if you have it set up really nice, once you go to mass spec, that's probably it. Like, if you're pretty happy with the list, like maybe even with one mass spec run, you could be done mm-hmm. on the mass spec end. So it does bring the cost down. Okay, that's
0: that's awesome. Um, so next question is actually one of my favorite question. Uh, is there any fun fact about proximity labeling in general?
1: Um, I think kind of the fun fact about it is because it's so new people are just starting to use it in all these different, um, areas. So for me, I work in lymphatic biology. And so most of the papers I've read with my version of the bio ID have been plant papers. So it's really interesting to see like people are using this technology all in all sorts of different fields. So that's been really interesting for me. And then my lab had a semi personal connection to the bio ID technology. This postdoc that I worked with who kind of helped me start this project and introduced me to the technology, his best friend from undergrad I was actually one of the scientists that came up with the bio-ID technology. Oh so if God. we had problems, <laughs> we could go directly to yeah. the source. But he could go directly to the source and be like, hey, I don't get this. Explain. So it was um, really nice for us. But it was really funny because it's just like a small world. And He hadn't talked to him and probably like, I don't know. Over 10 years, and then <laughs> um it was really funny like hearing them on their Zoom talk. It was like no time had passed at all. So, yeah. as it goes to show you that you know, you never know, like, in, especially in science, like all these random people you might meet at like conferences or just know in general can help your project yeah. out and you can help each other out. So, it goes to show like science is really a community. Yes, you know? absolutely. And I'm by
0: doing this podcast, I've realized like it's such a small world. I am realizing, and I have had a few guests, I was just talking to them about uh, the issues I was having in my Western blot regarding antibodies. It's always an antibody. And they suggested me something. I bought a trial size and it worked. I was working on that antibody for like eight, nine, ten months and nothing was working. And they just suggested a simple thing from a different company and... It it has to be like the best Western blot I've ever gotten. So it's really like, it's a community. And I think we can only
1: excel by talking and communicating basically. Yeah, I agree. And it's also like really nice to like even look at like other fields too, because I feel like sometimes when you're doing your research and you're just seeing the same names of the papers all the time, the same techniques, it's really nice to be able to see what other people are doing. Mm -hmm. So I really think your podcast is really great because you just are profiling a lot of different technologies. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times like you might see something then you're like, oh, that's kind of a cool idea, but I have no idea like how it works, or even how expensive it is. Because a lot of times if you go to your PI and be like, I want to do this, the next question is, how much does it cost? cost? How quick is it? (laughs) And you're like, I don't know. They never tell you in the papers. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and my last question for you would be, could you suggest any articles or protocols for proximity labeling so that I can link that down in the description?
1: Yeah, so there's uh, a lot of different bioID technology out there these days, but one of my favorite, it's called um, Meet the Neighbor. So it's it's a really cute title yeah. uh, for bioID. So it's kind of a review article that explains generally how bioID develops. So it's a little bit I don't want to call it old. It's from 2016, but that was yeah. about the very first bioID technology. So pretty mm-hmm. much if you understand. This uh, paper and the basic concepts, any other things you see. So like they have BioID, Apex, BioID 2, Mm -hmm. Mini Turbo, Turbo. Mm -hmm. They have something else called Mini something. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But if you understand that most basic original um, idea, you can really kind of understand any new technology. And I think this paper, Meet the Neighbors, um, Mapping Vocal Protein interactomes by Proximity-Dependent Labeling with BioID – is probably one of the best explanations. I think they have really good um, graphic kind of visually showing you that same idea about the fishing net that I've talked about. Mm -hmm. They really kind of show it visually like what you're looking at. So I think that's a really great place to start.
0: Well, okay. Thank you so much. I will make sure to have that in the description below in the show notes. Um, And with that, uh, I'm going to end today's episode. And thank you, Natalie, so much for giving us your time and explaining what proximity labeling is. Thank you. Uh, And listeners, I will catch you next week on another episode of the podcast. And in meanwhile, if you have any suggestions, or if you would like to join me on the podcast, please email me at barkha at nerdrxpodcast.com. And remember, it's good to be a nerd. Bye.